Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 53 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. Tonight, I'm joined by my co-host, the guy who started off on this podcast as just Darren. By episode two, he was the artist formerly known as Darren. And just last week, he became Sick Semper Darrenus. And I am just Mary. Oh, you're not just Mary. <laughs> What's going What's going on? How are you? I'm good. What's How are going- you? Oh, it's a lovely day in the neighborhood. It really, really is. A little hot, little steamy. We're on day 25 of living on the sun here. Yes, I, I know hot, it is. I hear about it from you every day. Oh. Well, you know, What's it like there? It's hot again. It fucking sucks. It is a it's hot here too, Darren. Goal. It's hot here too. Well, well, this is Darren's problem. Okay, we're talking about me now. I know. And if full- Darren, if Darren has a problem. Okay. Well, all right. Well, that's fine. I <laughs> just mean, kidding. I'll just, I'll just. I'm on like third box of gold bond powder today, but no one seems to care. Fine. It's all good. It's all good. But you hey, know, females females have similar. Just we'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, that's where we were going to this, but okay. <laughs> off we go. So anyway, what about Civil War? <laughs> anyway, so, you know, how's it going besides being hot? Oh, oh it's fabulous. It couldn't be better. Soft serve and sunshine. Everything is Soft good. Soft serve from the old but, DQ? Um, the old DQ. You, you get got your it. discount? The old you get your uh, discount? I haven't been on a DQ in a while, as a matter of fact. But Jeez, you anyway, I gave you all those discount cards. I know. You know, they are. You sell eBay. They're all gone. <laughs> anyway, um, but no, so I thought it was a good podcast last week. It you was. You mentioned the six Semper Durandas. We talked about John Wilkes Booth and the gang last yep. week. We had a really good Facebook Live. And I guess we will get have to get back into the whole Civil War thing. We had a lot of fun talking about that with Dave Taylor last week. Yep. We're going to go back into some battles and have some fun with this. And so um, it's good to be back talking battles again. It is. Yeah, I love talking about the conspiracy and the assassination. Me too. But we got some business to do, Mary, some business to do. We do. But first of all, a huge thank you to Dave Taylor for joining us. We will definitely be having him back to talk more about probably the other conspirators and just the assassination and conspiracy as a whole. He was a really, really fun guest to have on. So we were very happy he joined us. So yes, as you said, down to business, which means what are you drinking? Look at me being polite and asking you first. I didn't hear a sir. But in any case. What are you drinking, uh, sir? Oh, wow. Saw. So I, I am drinking, <laughs> sir. I'm drinking Devil's Purse. It's called Pearl Cutter from here in Cape Cod. Ooh. And generally, I have no coffee mug because they're all put away. So I will uh, have to go with my can today. So what about yourself? What are you drinking? I am drinking Good Monster by Collective Arts Brewing. It is an 8% IPA. So we'll see how I'm doing at the end of this episode. But I am drinking it out okay. of the Ride with the Winner mug. These were sent to us. We both have one sent to us by LaRoe Design, which he's got a shop on Redbubble. And there's actually, I think he's got the Oliver Otis Howard t-shirt on there now that he's selling. You mean that the Mary exclusive? Oh, God, stop it. No. Yeah, so what are we talking about today? What's what's going on today? We are headed back to the Western Theater to talk Battle of Richmond, Kentucky. And it is a battle. Wait, Kentucky? Yeah. Oh, Virginia. Oh, crap. I'm kidding. <laughs> are you ill prepared? <laughs> oh, well. So we're doing Five Forks again. Oh, no. Pop culture now. Oh, no. <laughs> but you are right, Mayor. We were talking about the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky, which uh, August 29th, August 30th, mm-hmm. 1862. Did you know it was fought at the same exact time as Second Manassas? Speaking of Virginia? I was just about to uh, comment on that, that it's fought at the exact same time, which is probably one of the reasons that it gets overshadowed because I'm thinking Kirby Smith, Robert E. Lee. Yeah, you're going to talk about yeah, Robert E. Kind of, Lee a little a... bit more. The whole Kentucky campaign really does get overshadowed by what's happening in the Eastern Theater. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as we've discussed on our Facebook Live a couple times and on this podcast, you know, proximity to the major media outlets, which were in the East, are one of the reasons why the Eastern Theater battles sometimes get more press. But all battles matter, as we said on this podcast. You know, the one thing that we want to really hit home with this battle of Richmond, Kentucky, is that it is a really, it's another important battle in the Civil War, especially in 
in the Western theater because it's starting to show how events are going to play out in the Western theater. Well, I mean, we were joking before about the Kentucky versus the Richmond thing and the, uh, the Virginia thing. And that's kind of, a, in a nutshell, the issue with the Civil War sometimes. Is this is fought the same weekend as Second Manassas. But again, Kentucky was just as important as Virginia in a lot mm-hmm. of different ways. This battle that we're going to talk about, the Battle of Richmond, really could be considered the invasion of Richmond instead of a battle. Because that's kind of what it was. Kentucky is an important state for the Union and the Confederacy. It's a border state. It is loaded with all kinds of supplies, livestock, KFCs everywhere. It's also loaded with riverways to transport men, material all over the place. And like a lot of the border states by 1862, it's kind of turned into like a simmering dumpster fire of a state. It's filled with turmoil. You know, it's a slave state, but it's interesting because it's definitely sympathizes with the Confederates and their friends in the South. There's no question. And it's got full of Virginia transplants and the Descendants in it. It's just, it's a very Southern sympathetic state. But herein lies the rub, Mary, is the money aspect. Kentucky had an extremely strong commerce relationship with the North because mm-hmm. of their proximity to that Ohio River, right? Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, the slave owners in Kentucky, they wanted to stay in the Union because of these economic ties with the North. So they were willing to forego it because of money. And that was a big, big deal. Now, the governor of Kentucky, one of my favorite names, his name is Barrich McGoffin, which automatically Reminds you of Bacon McMuffin, but that's another story. <laughs> and you know, why do I get a feeling we're going to see him sitting <laughs> in a McDonald's every time? <laughs> but he's in a place called Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Now he is extremely pro-Southern. Right. They actually called two special sessions in the state to secede from the Union. State chose to remain neutral. They just, he just couldn't get the votes. And after Sumter was fired on, he tried, but he could not get the state to secede. Eventually, Kentucky ends up in June of 1861, electing themselves a very pro-union state legislature. So it's going to cause within about a year, McGoffin to quit and resign. Mm-hmm. He's going to get replaced by a pro-union governor named James F. Robinson. Now, this pro, and what's interesting was you were saying before, they promised to stay neutral. But one of the things they do is this pro-union legislature authorizes raising a pro-union home guard, kind of like we did in Missouri a few weeks ago, but in reverse. In 1861, in August, they established a fort called Camp Dick Robinson in central Kentucky. What just like am- saying the name. <laughs> what Dick an amazing Robinson. name. Was that um, the fort that was located next to the Bang Barn? I think it might have been. I think yep. it might have been. You're doing a disc two for one coupons, I think, if you went there. <laughs> Fridays, but not Saturdays. But but it was focused on recruiting and training that pro-union home guard. But this right off the bat is going to violate that neutrality because they're talking about they want to be neutral. But now they're raising a home guard to protect the economic pro-union sympathies now within the government of the state and a pro-Southern populist. That's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. But the Confederates had their own called the state guards. Now, another interesting thing about Kentucky is... Is that it is literally brother against brother. This is a state where that seems to happen more and more. Um, another interesting thing too is you look at kind of the geography of the state where you know in the south and the west was the culture was a lot more like the deep south. There's a lot more slave owners in that area. Uh, tobacco was the cash crop in that area and it accounted for a quarter of the nation's tobacco output and hemp is also grown there just like in Missouri. The north and east of Kentucky, they're the ones that are a little bit more aligned with the North. So they're ideologically and economically starting to move away from slavery. Their crops are moving towards grains and cereals, which are a little less labor intensive. Tobacco and hemp are very labor intensive crops. So that's why uh-huh. they, they needed the slaves. Northern Kentucky's also getting into horse breeding and was manufacturing, which manufacturing is more of a Northern thing compared to 
the South, right? So you have this kind of, I guess, this economical, geographical divide that is happening, but you Uh also have the brother against brother aspect. Uh, For instance, like Henry Clay, his grandsons are living in Kentucky. Three of them fight for the Union and four fight for the Confederacy. So you have these families that are literally divided. Same with Crittenden, who was a statesman. He's got one son fighting for the North and one son fighting for the South. Uh So it's very much this. Now, this happens in all states, but for some reason with Kentucky, just because of how divided they are, you know, we're talking about a state that uh, part of them goes rogue and they eventually get accepted into the Confederacy as the 13th state in the Confederacy. They have a star on the Confederate flag, but they're not really like, you know, you don't really think of them when you think of the Confederate States of America. Abraham Lincoln and Davis, that matter, but Lincoln really wanted to keep Kentucky in the Union. He did. You know, he by, the, by the way, it's good to see Lincoln back after last week's Booth episode, by the way. So welcome back, Abe. Yeah. It's good to talk to you again. So <laughs> glad, glad he made it back. Hope the play was um, good. Oh, you know, too but, you know, soon. But, oh, okay. Wow. But uh, but Abraham Lincoln, you know, he has that quote. He says, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Exactly. That was a right. He knows he has it. Jefferson Davis, same deal. He also wants to keep Kentucky as a Confederate state. Now, what's interesting about old Jeff Davis and Abe Lincoln, where were they born? Kentucky. Kentucky. Right? About 100 miles from each other, yep. about a year apart, I think. I think they were pretty close. Yep. But And um, one was born into more of a poverty. The other was born into a very like rich family as well. Like They basically had opposite upbringings, which is a lot like what you see going on in Kentucky between the north and the, the south of the state, right? Like, I don't think there's a more poor-sounding place than Sinking Springs farm. I think that's about as miserable as it possibly sounds. For when Lincoln. I was a kid, I read you know? it as stinking spring and that's what I kept calling it. Oh, of course you did. You know, <laughs> geographically, Kentucky is pinned right in the middle between the north and the south. They're kind of stuck yeah. in no man's land. They're in a tough spot. Now the rebels, they want Kentucky for all those things we talked about, the supplies, all those riverways they can get all over the place to travel throughout mm-hmm. the state. Yep. So what are they going to do? We're going to kind of throw do a little throwback. I'm going to do share and do a little turn back time real if quick. I some other episodes. back time. But, okay, stop doing that. Confederates had three forts right on the Tennessee-Kentucky border in 1861. One, of course, was Island Number 10, yep. which is on the Mississippi. One was Fort Henry on the Tennessee, and the other, of course, was Fort Donaldson on the Cumberland River. So by fall of 1861, Kentucky becomes a site of that Confederacy's northern military defense, that Trans-Appalachian mm-hmm. Confederacy, which later was called Confederate Department Number 2, as the marketing department was sleeping at the switch again with that name, You could make so many jokes about that. Oh, tell me about it. No question. <laughs> but along the northern border of Tennessee, near that island number 10, the rebel troops are going to advance into Bowling Green, Kentucky. About 30,000 guys, so a pretty good amount of people, as well as some of the other parts of the state, in primarily in eastern Kentucky from Knoxville, Tennessee. They're going to take that eastern edge. Now, the rebels are going to find themselves, for the most part, holding so many strategic places in Kentucky all of a sudden by the fall of 1861. The commander at that time was Albert Sidney Johnson, mm-hmm. also from Kentucky. Everybody's from Kentucky today. Funny how that works there's out. There's a lot you know? of people in this when we get talking about the battle. There's a lot of people involved from Kentucky in this battle. Yeah. The Union, what they want to do is they want to keep the Confederates out of there. So they're going to send troops over from Cairo, Illinois. Okay, we talked about the whole thing before with Donaldson and all that. And it's going to be the Union Army of Tennessee. So the Union Army, they're going to move to a place called Paducah, Kentucky, in western Kentucky, and Smithland, uh, which is kind of in the northeast. Now, the Union is going to control at this time because they're going to move in the entrances to the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers. So what do they have now is a launching pad with the Navy to get into that heartland of Kentucky. So they have an opportunity, right? The Union Army of Tennessee at this time, of course, is under U.S. Grant. All the old friends are coming back home here. So also is Don Carlos Buell, 
commanding the Army of the Ohio, and he's going to move from Louisville, Kentucky to Mumford, Kentucky, and they're going to control that central part of Kentucky. So by early 1862, the Union Army spread out, but they hold so many points within the state of Kentucky heading into that winter of 1862. As you said, they've got control over all, most of, like all of Kentucky, but they've also got most of Tennessee and northern Alabama as well. And this is when Bragg and Kirby Smith are going to start to put together a little bit of a plan. Well, they will, they will. But just, mm-hmm. just real quick, just finishing real quick about how they were yep. setting, the union was setting this up. So January of 1862, our old friend George Thomas, because mm-hmm. we were going, this is this is bring your old friends back. We yep. episodes, they're all coming back. George Thomas is going to f- defeat George Crittenden. The Battle of Mill Springs is where Thomas gets that Rock of Mill Springs nickname, right? <laughs> it's going to be really the first significant Union victory of the war. This is, It really is. So by February 62, we mentioned before, Grant takes Fort Henry. Yep. He takes Fort Donelson. It leads to, and why it's key about this is not just the whole un, you know unconditional surrender thing. It forces Albert Sidney Johnson to completely vacate Kentucky. Yep. So almost overnight, well, not overnight, but within a couple of days, yep. a couple of months, the Confederates held a whole bunch of strongholds, strategic strongholds in Kentucky that Lincoln really wanted. And now in February of 1862, the Union controls just about all of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And now is when Bragg gets aggravated and decides to take it back. Yep. Yeah, he, he gets a little bit aggravated with it. But in between that time, though, you have the Battle of Shiloh, which almost go, goes the wrong way for mm-hmm. Grant. It ends up being a Union victory. I think we can consider it that. But yes, you have Bragg and getting a little bit annoyed. And he's really wanting to take back Kentucky. They need to get Kentucky back. But the other thing that is they need to consider, too, is that the Union are starting to go after Vicksburg. Vicksburg is becoming their target Mm -hmm. and Bragg needs that. How do we divert them away? Mm -hmm. It's all kind of the walls are kind of closing in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Bragg, who had just replaced Pierre Gustave Dutton Beauregard, as we call him, after the Battle of Corinth, he's facing that specter of the Union controlling all of Kentucky and most of Tennessee. Now, the the Confederates still own that eastern sliver that's really important that goes from Chattanooga to to Knoxville, to your point. Mm -hmm. So Edmund Kirby Smith, we'll talk about him. He's a commander of an army in Knoxville at this time. He's protecting a railroad and telegraph lines from that Chattanooga to Knoxville area. Now, it's a strategic, important area because that's their communication line, and mm-hmm. you have to keep it open. Now, Smith, real quick, born in St. Augustine, Florida in 1824, U.S. Military Academy, like most of these guys are, class of 1845. And he's like like they all are. He's right in the middle. Class yeah. 25th out of 41, he goes to class with Bernard B., talk about him, Thomas Wood, and Lewis Haybear. So yeah. he's, got some, you know, he's got some popular names. And they usually fought in Mexico under Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. He joins the Confederacy after a three-year stint teaching math your old job at west point you know so who now, else taught math at west point what you know who else taught math at west point who's that oliver otis howard yes. oh wow there yes it is. i got my reference wow okay. everybody take a drink okay <laughs> so he joins the confederacy when the war breaks out he gets his star on june 17th 1861 and he's um he you know he fought a first bull run but february yeah. of 1862 kirby smith assumes command of the eastern division of army of tennessee he wants to get kentucky back is what he really really wants to do so before he gets going with bragg he kind of does his first little see if i can do this recon invasion with john hunt morgan so he's going to send john hunt morgan's second kentucky cavalry to go into central Kentucky from Sparta, Tennessee, and just do cavalry things, mm-hmm. wreck shit, cut telegraph lines, destroy railroads, do everything they can. It's really his for the first hint, if you look back at hindsight, of Kirby Smith's 
plans invasion. That's really what this is of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So Morgan, he does his job. He destroys all kinds of stuff. He keeps going north, cutting all the telegraph lines. He gets to Lexington, Kentucky, gets that far up. He's going to capture hundreds of Union prisoners, but he's wise enough, unlike Earl Van Dorn, to parole them. He's going to parole these guys. And so he's also destroying millions of dollars worth of supplies. But then he sneaks back into Tennessee. But what it shows Kirby Smith is that it can be done to get in there because you're so spread out. So Bragg, in August 1862 now, he's going to move his entire army to Chattanooga via the railroad. 35,000 guys on the train. It's the biggest movement of an army of all time via the railroad to this day. 35,000 guys trying to get a drink on that train. No way. Get it. (laughs) You know? But So in Chattanooga, he's going to, this is when he has his meeting with Kirby Smith. Yeah. Uh, at a place on the Crutchfield House Hotel. They want to formulate a game plan. Smith, you know, he wants to take his troops and he wants to take them over from Knoxville and he wants to go right into Kentucky. And Bragg says, you know what? Okay, I'll let you do it. I'm going to give you two additional units. I'm going to give you a unit by Patrick Claiborne and a second one by Preston Smith. So this is really how it begins. So August 14th, 1862, Kirby Smith's 17,000 guys leave Knoxville. They're going to get to a place called Barbersville, Kentucky yep. on the 18th. And they're going to chill for, you know, for about 10 days and just kind of hang out yep. and rest is what they're going to do. And and the goals with uh, this campaign that will become the Kentucky campaign that Bragg and, and Kirby Smith have formulated, they want to make the Kentucky Confederate government, they want to try and make them official, but good luck with that because, you know, Kentucky legislature is mainly run by, by people who support the Union. They want to threaten the Union cities along the Ohio River. And they also also want to recruit men to join the confederate army like on this little campaign that they're doing they actually have wagons full of weapons that they think they're going to be giving to men you know that that they're going to recruit which is which is funny but yeah as you said you know smith leaves knoxville they get up into um barbersville they were not well received there at all no because again this is a state union ta- it does have it's some, union it's union because it, but they're union because of the money right yeah they just they don't want to see them leave the union because they're going to lose their supply base so august 26th when they finally get going. So Smith's going to move his army forward. It's ironically, he's going to leave 7,000 of his guys, his largest division behind under old friend Carter Stevenson. He's yep. going to leave him back. Yep. And Smith, he's going to get deeper and deeper into the state, the bluegrass region. And this is where John Hunt Morgan, for the most part, was. He's kind of following the same game plan that Morgan did. That's why he sent Morgan ahead to kind of lay out the land so he knows he can get there. Mm -hmm. What was impressive, too, was how much they moved, considering how frigging hot it was. Oh, and there was a drought and just the, the terrain was horrible as well. But there had been a horrible drought that summer in Kentucky, and it was so hot and it was absolutely miserable. It's actually, so it's a guy named Colonel John S. Scott with his cavalry is he is out in front you know doing kind of the looking ahead seeing what's going on but it is Patrick Claiborne's that that is leading Kirby Smith's airmen into Kentucky Claiborne's men they talk about how there's this one hill that they have to go up the horses it's so steep that the men have to drag the artillery up the hill themselves it was just they said it was absolute hell to do it and mm-hmm. Like, they're also dealing with this drought. They're dealing with, like, they are not welcome at all in this state. It is quite no. evident that it it's uh, it's very union. It's very on, like, in a way, it's kind of a little bit of the opposite of what we talked about with Battle of Wilson's Creek, where, you know, you almost had it going the other way with the bullshit that was going on there. Here, uh-huh. they're in union territory, and, you know, they show up, and they have no food, and they're not going to get food. Like, Claiborne's men, when they got to Barbersville, were living off green corn and green apples. Like, that's... Being green. That that is uh no thank you. <laughs> no. But Smith's 
making his march. You know, I don't know if they're singing marching through Kentucky or anything like that, <laughs> but they're they're make they're making their march through Kentucky. Yeah. And the union's gonna get wind of this. I mean, they're scattered, but they realize what's going on. They're gonna learn of Kirby Smith's advance. Lou Wallace, who's in charge of this area at the time, is gonna begin to mass his troops on Lexington, Kentucky. He's going to blow the conch shell to try to get all the guys there the yep. best they can. Don Carlos Buell, who happens to be marching towards Nashville at the time, probably going to the big Kenny Chesney concerts, realistically where he's going. <laughs> he is going to order a Kentucky native by the name of William Bull Nelson. We've talked about him quite a bit, along with Brigadier General Marlon Manson and Charles Cruft. We're going to talk about them a lot. He orders them to organize into a force to try and slow and hopefully stop Kirby Smith's invasion. So he's going to kind of put a military an army together on the fly with scotch tape and bondo to try to stop Kirby Smith. Now, Lou mm -hmm. Wallace, he's going to send three divisions from Kentucky to Richmond, Kentucky, which is in central Kentucky, under a command by the name of a guy named William Locke. So he's from 12, the 12th Indiana. He's going to send some cavalry as well by the name of uh, James Jackson. What they want to do is they kind of just want to throw a stop, kind of like what we talked about with Lou Wallace and Monocacy. They want to cover and block the entrance to the bluegrass region of Kentucky and yeah. just kind of stop them there. What they're also going to do is going to take some other troops to defend the northern banks of that Kentucky River. So they're really what they're trying to do is just, is just stop them. They're not going to sit there and throw them out of Kentucky or anything like that. They just want to stop them. So August 23rd, you have an initial skirmish of cavalry at a place called Big Hill, which I call Big Undulation. Just saying. It's just south of Richmond. The Rebs under John Scott, your cavalry guy you just mentioned, yep. are going to beat the living piss out of a guy named Leonidas Metcalf, the 7th Kentucky Cavalry. Mm. It's going to be so bad, Wallace is going to call the loss, and I quote, disgraceful. That's how bad that Metcalf's cavalry is going to get whipped up by John Scott. What happens is by beating them up as bad as they do at Big Hill, okay, the Confederate cavalry has, for the most part, opened the door now to Richmond for Kirby Smith's army. Yep. So what they kind of did is they kind of road graded and cleared the path. So now Smith, that next day, can start to move. Now on the 24th, Bull Nelson. Now Bull Nelson, real quick, he's a 300-pound dude. Apparently Must have fun he had to ride great command of swearing. Apparently he's the patron saint of this podcast. <laughs> but he's going to get on the 24th. Oh, yeah, on the 24th, he gets to, <laughs> he's going to get to Lexington, Kentucky to relieve Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace is going to go back to Ohio and do, do some more recruiting and some stuff like that. But he's going to kind of relieve him at that spot. Nelson, like I said, big boy, he hears of his previous day's cavalry butt kicking. He immediately leaves for Richmond on a horse, 30 miles away, 300 pound dude on a horse going fast for 30 miles. Just, just let that the sink in. Horse. Okay. That probably swearing. Okay. He also orders his troops to march as fast as possible to Richmond, Kentucky, including some that were defending that key area I mentioned before over there in Clay's Ferry on the, on the, um, the ridge yep. looking over the Kentucky river. So he wants them all in, in Richmond as fast as possible. Now, Nelson on August 27th, don't forget, he's putting an army together. He doesn't, he doesn't have his own army. He has to put it together on, based on scrap pieces. He managed to put together eight regiments from Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and a couple of artillery battalions. So he puts them into two brigades the best he can. One is under a guy named Malin Manson, who talked about. He's from Ohio, former druggist from Indiana. Where the heck that is? Okay. Maybe, he's, and then maybe the other, his relative sold drugs to Marilyn Manson. Maybe he sold hemp. Also in from Ohio. <laughs> 420, right? 
the other one is to mention Charles Croft. Now, Croft from Terre Haute, Indiana, the home of Indiana State University, home of the great Larry Bird, by the way, just saying. <laughs> Croft is a active Freemason, an active Knights Templar. He's someone who's nice. really active in that field. So many of these troops they're going to run into, though, when you put an army together quick, are going to be green. And that's going to be an issue, especially getting to Richmond. Half the guys don't know how to march. They don't know how to do the wheel maneuvers. They wow. just don't know where to go. That's a big problem. This is like what we so, see a year prior at First Manassas and the battle that's about to happen in the East of yeah. Second Manassas. You know? Well, I can picture someone, you know, left face and they all turn right. Yeah. You know, that's kind of that how it was, like me. stripes, you know, something like that. Exactly. That would be me. But that's the army that Nelson has. He's got a couple of pretty good brigade guys in Manson and Crufts, but he's got green troops and he's also going into a situation. He knows he's going to fight defensively here, but he's also fighting in this heat. He has to march fast. That's how it's going to go. So August 29th, mm-hmm. Nelson is going to telegraph General Horatio Wright. This is kind of funny. Somehow he screws this up. His message to Wright simply says, I think Smith is going towards Buell and not Richmond, which I don't know how we figure that out. That's fuck? the message he, he mentioned. That. And the funny part about it is that that very moment while he's probably typing away, okay, the vanguard of Smith's infantry, 3,500 guys, is arriving at Big Hill, yep. which is just south of Richmond, the site of that cavalry skirmish on the 23rd. So he wasn't ready even though he got the armor to get a quick John Scott's rebel cavalry um, is going to hit that Manson's pick a line about five miles from Richmond in that heat. They're going to fight in that brutal summer heat. Even Kirby Smith later after the war will say that this March, this Richmond campaign it was ragged, barefoot, and starved. I never saw such suffering from an army. That's a quote he had. Yeah. So he's he's having a tough time. Mayland Manson's brigade, he's going to be in position about 15 miles north of Big Hill and two miles south of Richmond, Kentucky. So he, they're getting there. Charles Cross Brigade is located a little further north in, in a cemetery called the Richmond Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Union Cavalry Commander Leonidas Metcalf, that 7th Kentucky guy who got his butt handed to him, he's reporting that he's seeing large numbers of rebels moving towards Richmond. So yeah. now Nelson and Manson know they're coming. They're coming. Manson responds by putting his troops on a ridge near the Mount Zion Church. And this is south of the Rogersville Crossroads, five miles south of Richmond. And this is really where the lion's share of the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky is going to take place. Yeah. Also on the 29th, though, you have Claiborne hearing around five o'clock, he hears artillery and he calls his men together and has them form a line of battle. And he said, one thing that happened was that I had scarcely dismissed them before firing and yelling was heard at our front. And almost simultaneously, a multitude of stragglers consisting of Colonel Scott's cavalry brigade, sick men, baggage baggage wagon, servants, leading horses came flying through in the utmost consternation, closely pursued by the whole of Metcalf's command of U- U.S. cavalry. So what does Claiborne do? He gets, the four, he gets men from the 48th Tennessee, who are part of the sharpshooters that he has put together after Shiloh. They wait till they're within 25 yards and they fire on them and they drive them away. So that is also some of the skirmishing that is going to take place on the 29th. And then Claiborne again sends his sharpshooters forward as some of the Federals approach him. The Federals retreat. And that's when they go back and that's when Manson sets them up along that Zion, just four regiments just south of the Zion Church. So he's got three regiments on the east side of the old state road and one on the west side of the old state road. And that's where we go into August 30th, which is, or as you said, that a lot of this fighting takes place at the Battle of Richmond. Well, Manson's got a pretty good army, though, you mentioned. So he's Mm -hmm. got about 6,500 guys this time. He's got, you know, all those regiments you mentioned, the 69th Indiana, which is the German guys Mm -hmm. under Herman Korf. Then on the east, those the west side. On the east guys, you got the 55th, the 71st, and the 16th Indiana with those four 
artillery pieces. So just just imagine a road going north. Army is going to be straddling both sides of it. At least it, that, that's how it's ultimately going to be. And they want to defend that position of the Rebs coming north up that old state road. Once fall, darkness falls on the 29th, Manson is going to send an order to Charles Cruft and that cemetery to haul ass and get there. And so by four o'clock in the morning on the 30th, Manson's brigade is for the most part going to be get set up. Now, here's the thing. It's four o'clock in the morning on the 30th. His guys are making breakfast, okay? I don't know if they're having a beverage McMuffin or not, but that's <laughs> what they're doing, right? They're having breakfast. Rebs start to arrive and it's misty. It's hazy. They're going to start to arrive through the mist coming north on that old state road, straddling both sides of the road from the south. Patrick Claiborne's division, as you mentioned, is going to be in the lead of the first to arrive. Now, these guys, unlike the Union guys, which are green for the most part, these are hard-fighting, battle-tested guys who fought at places like freaking Shiloh. Yep. These are Tennessee guys, Arkansas guys, brutal, brutal guys. Now, the first brigade under Claiborne that's going to get there is going to be from Benjamin Hill. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Hill, the Lee Brigade, the 13th and 15th Arkansas, 2nd and 5th Tennessee in that James Douglas battery. They're going to be coming up, followed behind them, and that second wave is going to be Preston Smith's Brigade of Tennesseans. This is the 12th and the 47th, the 13th and the 154th, the Senior Regiment, they called them, yep. because they were formed in 1842. Just wow. they call them the senior regiment. So that's that was a cool thing. So and then coming up behind them to the southwest on the west side of the old state road is Thomas Churchill's mm-hmm. division. So a lot of guys are coming. Now Manson, he mentions to Cruft, the hell, hurry, you better get here. He's at those four regiments that you talked about, and they're in battle formation on that old state state turnpike. Now Claiborne, he's ready to go. He's friggin' ready, right? He's, he you can imagine is. him. Got his, got his lucky charms. His Jameson. <laughs> he's had his lucky go, charms right? for breakfast. But at 7.30 in the morning, Kirby Smith says, slow down, Leprechaun. Stop right there. We're not ready yet. He stops him. He holds him up because he wants to wait until Churchill's division catches up. Yep. He's a little bit behind. Because what he wants to do is Churchill on the left side of the old state road coming north, simultaneous with Claiborne kind of both coming up at the same time, yeah. kind of straddling that old state road, pushing against the Mount Zion Church ridgeline mm-hmm. and that Rogersville. That's, he wants to, that's where he wants to hit. They sit around till noon, noontime, right? Noontime, Churchill's finally in place. And he sends his brigades um, under a guy named Thomas McRae to the west of that turnpike. These are Texans and Arkansas guys and the tough guys. What's interesting is they're going to be advancing through a valley. And the way the, the ground was, the left side of that road had a, I don't know what you want to call it. It was a, swale, a pitch. It, it but they couldn't be seen. They couldn't, they couldn't see them coming. So they're moving around to the Union right. Yeah. And for the most part, they, they can't be seen heading towards that Mount Zion church. The undulation is the clearly um, the MVP here, Mary. I'll tell you right now. This the battle. hill? The rolling hill? <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly was. Because Manson, he could look and he could see Claiborne's men east of that road. Yep. But he was blind to Churchill be on the west of it so to prepare, and this is where he screws this up and you can't really blame him but to prepare for Claiborne he's going to take a lot of his troops that were on the west side of the road and move them to his left flank yep so he's going to load up the union left flank and weaken the union right flank because mm-hmm. he doesn't see any soldiers coming at that right flank he wants to strengthen that side of the line because he sees Claiborne and he knows Claiborne well, and there's already a bit of and- artillery exchange happening at this time as well and they're starting right. and he thinks like shit i'm gonna be weakened 
So I've got to pull mm-hmm. troops. So you just picture his line. The Union right is, for the most part, a skeleton crew. The Union left is strong. But Claiborne, he sees what's going on, too. And he's like, well, so he's going to move his troops further east as well. So it's kind of like, you know, like Gettysburg and Little Round Top. Yep. They keep trying to go around each yep. other. So they're going to go further east to counter that Manson's movement to the Union to the Union left, including Preston Smith's entire friggin' brigade. He's going to move the entire brigade yep. there to overlap and flank Manson. And then they're going to start fall. They're going to they're get into that, that pitch battle. Well, Patrick, unfortunately, Patrick Claiborne is going to be a short timer on this one. He is. And that's because, so right before this uh, attack happens, Patrick Claiborne sees his friend Lucius Polk, who is the nephew of General Leonidas Polk, and he's wounded and he's being taken off the battlefield. So Claiborne goes over to see if he's okay. And it is a pretty severe wound, but he's going to, he will live, obviously, when Claiborne finds out he's going to be okay. He turns to say something to his men and his head all of a sudden just jerks to the right, like really violently. And his men were like, oh shit, Jesus, he's he's going to die. Next thing you know, like a bullet falls out of his mouth. He's been shot through his left cheek. It takes out between two and five teeth apparently and but he's like when they see he's okay and then pat claiborne kind of like gives a like no 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 i got this it's okay claiborne later would say that he basically caught the mini ball in his mouth and spit it out if messes it affected his voice so badly only the sounds of mary walk and roll karaoke sounded worse than him trying to talk at that very moment but he's spitting out his teeth he's spitting out the bullet the the troops think he's gone up the spout they think he he got shot in the face but then he gives the he's like no i'm fine and he keeps trying to command and (laughs) karaoke jesus (laughs) anyway it gets to the point where the swelling and blood like makes it so that he can't talk someone's gotta say to him dude you need to vacate the dance floor. You can't command anymore. So he has to leave to go get taken care of. And he's going to be a few weeks before he can actually talk again properly. And even after that, I mean, you lose like four or five teeth. You probably are going to sound a little bit strange. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's a horrific injury. I mean, it really, really is. We yeah. joke about it. But that that was one that could have changed a lot of history on the Confederate side. Preston yeah. Smith is going to ultimately have to take over the division. Yeah. So on that rebel left, west of the old state road now, here comes Thomas McRae's brigade under Churchill, right? Mm-hmm. They're moving up completely undetected towards that Union line on their right flank, completely unbeknownst to Crofts, Manson, Rosewood's clown, anybody. Nobody can see him. <laughs> McRae's brigade is going to begin to attack. He's going to start with an artillery under a guy named John Humphrey. So Crofts, at this time, he's just getting set up. He just arrived at Richmond Cemetery, and he's setting up that Union left after getting there. He has no idea that McRae's Texans in Arkansas are about to hit them. He's just not ready. John T. Humphrey's artillery opens up on him. Uh, right off the bat, the 95th Ohio gets absolutely popular pounded off the bat. This is William McMillan's regiment. They just get completely wasted. And this is going on while Claiborne's doing his thing to get around that Union left. The battle is attacking at the same time, exactly what uh, Kirby Smith wanted. Just after noon, Manson, he's going to get a message from William Bull Nelson. And it's going to, this is, this is typical. He's got some message. He says, Hey, just so you know, don't bring on a general engagement. And he's like, well, what the hell? I'm already <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, I mean, that's a little late, right? Could use this information two hours ago. He goes, why don't you, why don't you fall back to Lancaster, Kentucky? And he's like, well, this is too late. He can't do it. So this time they're getting really hit hard because the numbers are telling the story and Croft not being able to see McRae's guys really, really put them as well as the fact that Manson put a lot of the troops on the Union left at that time. So 
The line's completely falling apart. I mean, the line is falling apart faster than the Indians in the postseason, Mary. That's how quickly it's going badly. They're running, they're retreating back in a mass panic. So just imagine, again, at the same time, second Manassas is going on. This is going on. So things aren't going this a bad day for mother here for the union. Overall, right? They're having to vacate so, the dance floor, both the Eastern and the Western theaters. So so Croft, he's got his 12th and 66 Indiana fallback. They're all running. They're in a full retreat. He has them set up a defensive line it is at, right in front of a place called Castlewood. Castlewood yeah. is the state, the Kentucky State Senator's home of a guy named Richard White. He wants to set up another defensive line to basically allow the troops to kind of get the hell out of Dodge. Right about now, at the very moment, here comes Bull Nelson finally arriving. Can you okay? imagine him riding in all 300 pounds of him, six foot two on his fucking horse? I mean... I'm riding on a on a horse with no legs. That's probably what it would have been if he got there. Three hundred pounds. So, the funny part about it, he gets been there, through the desert the, on a horse with no legs. Yeah, well, you know, and <laughs> the, the the Union troops are cheering his arrival. Yeah, the the, the guy is here. By now, they got about less than four thousand guys left. They don't have a lot of people no. to deal with. So Bull Nelson, he's trying to keep them under control. He's trying to be orderly. The Rebs keep coming though. They don't stop. They keep pushing forward. McCray in that rebel left and Smith now on that rebel right. Mm-hmm. They're going to keep moving and moving and moving. So by 2.30, Nelson, he sees a situation for what it is. And he says, let's get the friggin' hell out of here. Yep. He orders a full retreat back to Richmond, which is four miles north of where they were at that time. They're still being chased by the Confederates. So it's not like they're letting them go. They're chasing them down. Yep. He's going to set up one last defensive line back at that Richmond cemetery where Cruff was at the beginning. And Nelson's trying to rally his troops who knows what he's doing but he's trying to get everybody going the rebs are going to launch one final attack at this point yep they got five thousand guys three brigades it's basically a two to one ratio they mm-hmm. have on the union the union has a defensive line in the cemetery many of the guys are hiding behind the gravestones as, as defense and the volleys are going back and forth the confederates fire a volley and the union fires a volley and then a really cool moment happens for the confederates that happens it's kind of a stalemate and looking to rally the troops there's a rebel general from france we don't see too many french no. guys on the confederate side okay his name is prince camille armand jules marie Del Polignac. There you go, right there. That's Holy his shit. name. Okay. And he's riding with Kirby Smith's army. He grabs the flag of the Fifth Tennessee and he basically says, you know, creme brulee for everybody. Follow me. <laughs> so he grabs I can the hear flag. the music from Man in the Iron Mask right. playing in my head right now. He grabs the flag and says, follow me. He runs in. All 5,000 Rebs follow him and charge into the cemetery. All of them. And the Union line just has that complete pucker moment. And they go, whoa, nope. So yeah. they, they're going to try to completely run back towards Richmond. Little do they know that John Scott's cavalry has already surrounded Richmond so they can cut up all the escape exactly. routes now because they don't want them getting caught. 4,500 Union guys are going to get bagged here. They're going to get caught yep. trying to escape from the cemetery from this charge by this French general supported by John Scott's cavalry. So Croft and Nelson ironically escape. I don't know how the hell Nelson escapes. That's like the kid in dodgeball survived. He I don't is know how just that like... But Manson is going to get captured and he's going to get caught. Now, what will happen as this goes forward is a complete and utter 
disaster for the union. It is. And it, it's uh, so when all those troops get captured and it's 4,300 of them that get, get captured. So when Scott captures the 4,300 union guys, Kirby Smith comes to him and says, how many do you have? And he doesn't have an exact number. And Scott just says, I have a field full. And that's where he's got them. He's got them in this field where they make this like makeshift stockade for them all to be. And he can't give him an exact number. So he's just like, I got a field for you kind of thing. Just something along those lines. But yeah, this is an absolute disaster for the Union. It is the one of the most total Confederate victories in the Civil War. And it never gets talked about. And it, well, it's, it's definitely the most lopsided. I mean, this was an so absolute yeah. this was an absolute astrogliding yeah. for the first order yeah. as far as a battle goes. Now you want to look at some of these casualty numbers. I know you like hearing this. So the Union guys, okay. They start with about 68,000, 7,000 guys. They're going to end up with 5,300 casualties. 4,300 are going to be captured. So that's a big day. On the Confederate side, Mm -hmm. they only have 450 casualties out of 6,500. There was a lot of battling going on, but there was a lot of running. Kirby Smith is going to score a gigantic victory here. Without a doubt, he's going to earn a promotion to lieutenant general out of this. He's going to be awarded what's called a thanks of Congress from the Confederate Congress on the 17th of February, 1864 for his actions at Richmond. He's ultimately going to come in the third corps in the Army of Tennessee going forward. If you're looking at a com- complete and utter slam dunk victory, black and white win, it's Richmond, Kentucky for the Confederacy. It was a time that if you're Abraham Lincoln, it could not have come in a worse time. Because no. don't forget too, this is coming off of, he's getting these, these telegrams from what's going on here from Bull Nelson. And also at the same time, he's getting messages from John Pope over in Manassas, right? Of what's going on. Pretty much. And that puts, and you realize the pressure, you know, we talked before in other, other episodes, the ballsy call of putting McClellan in charge at this moment. This was the environment that he had to make that decision in where you have got complete disaster. You've been dealing with good news in the West. You've dealt with U.S. Grants, you did yep. Shiloh. Now you've got this. Now you think you've probably lost Kentucky again, and you did not want to like this before. And he can't How- lose Kentucky. He can't. He, and so he has to he's, hold face, he's facing the specter of a loss in Kentucky after everything that Grant had done and now a factor of losing a battle in Virginia. And now, you know, Lee is going into Maryland. And so 1862, the summer of 62 in August, you realize how close it was. And like we said before, how important later uh, Sharpsburg was, the Battle of Antietam, because it was in this environment psychologically, militarily, and politically that this was what was going on. So what makes Richmond important isn't so much the the numbers, because it's relatively a small battle in comparison to some of the big boys, but what it does, it is an absolute hammer versus a nail situation Mm -hmm. for the Confederacy, coupled with Manassas, the second Manassas, which was another hammer nail for the Confederacy win. So it puts all the pressure on Lincoln administration going into the fall of 1862 to help preserve the union because don't forget he wants to do the emancipation proclamation yep. and there's no way now he can do it so you realize how important these later battles were so that's yep. that i think when you look at it you know it might just seem like oh it's all just hinging on what happened at manassas but no it's not like you got to know that lincoln knows what what is happening at richmond right so i think you have to take that in con- to consideration when you're looking at why he reinstates McClellan as the commander. You know, the other thing that happens too is, you know, Frankfort falls to Confederate troops and it's the only federal state capital to fall during the the entire war. Like that Mm -hmm. happens too. What, like 18 days before Antietam happens? 
about two weeks right. before so, South Mountain, so two like weeks, two weeks before, like, and that's, like that's just why. like all the shit that is happening. It's not just Second Manassas that is on Lincoln's shoulders here. It is this like you know you've got this Union capital that has fallen, and it's going to be the only one in the Civil War as well. But you know ultimately this campaign in Kentucky. It's not going to be a great thing in the long term for the Confederacy. Like Bragg doesn't get to recruit those troops that he wants to recruit at all. So those those wagons full of guns that he sent, they don't get anybody. Because I think they realize that the further they got into Kentucky, especially when they're in the bluegrass region, they're like, (laughs) they don't want us here and they don't want to be part of this shit. They're not going to join us. It wasn't like in Missouri, where I think it was a bigger threat that you had all these people all of a sudden joining the Confederates to fight against them that had been neutral before that didn't happen in Kentucky. So it's a very different, there's a very different type of thing going on there than what we saw in Missouri, I think. No, there's there's no question. So MVPs of this one, Mary, what do you think? I think the MVPs, so I mean, besides the obvious uh, Patrick Claiborne, I'm also going to have to go with Churchill as well with him, with what what he does down in Churchill, what becomes known as Churchill Draw, that the two of them are able to just keep driving them back and back and back. I don't know that there's really a union MVP. (laughs) Honestly, no, I don't there, think there, there really, is. really isn't. <laughs> but I, mean, I think besides I think... the obvious, like, I, I think to Patrick Claiborne, definitely he would be the number one I would think of because when you look back to him at Shiloh when he got completely pounded on that second day and he recognized that afterwards if he'd had sharpshooters to fire at the artillery, to fire at the skirmishers that he was facing, that he might have been able to gain more ground or not be like, things might not have gone as bad as what they were. So what does he do after Shiloh? He trains quite a few of his men to be sharpshooters. And what does he do at Battle of Richmond? He utilizes them in the way that he wanted to at Shiloh. He does that on the 29th and he uses them again on the 30th. But especially on the 29th, he's able to drive them back and he does what he couldn't do at Shiloh. And I think that's one reason to give him the MVP. But Churchill too, for getting down in that ravine and just being able to surprise the hell. I'd say, no no question, no question. How about for you? Who's your MVP? Well, I think I have to go to my French Ben, if anything, just to say his name again. (laughs) Prince Camille Armand Jules Marie de Polignac. That's who my MVP is, Mary. Anybody with that name deserves the MVP. For the Union side, it's really, really tough to say because, you know what, there are so many mistakes that were made. I mean, Marlon Manson did the best job he could overall. Cruff was late to get there. Nelson screwed up the initial orders. He got there late. So uh, Marlon Manson, I guess we'll go with him. But I think at the end of the day, it's kind of tough to find an MVP of this one on the Union side because it was so utterly dominating for the Confederacy. It it just was. It just was. Yeah. I think here you have tried and tested troops in, in Claiborne men and, and probably in Preston Smith's too and the Union troops are all green you know you're going up against a guy who like Claiborne is becoming quite a rising star by this point you know he's really starting uh-huh. to, to prove himself I don't think they had a chance against him especially no. when they're green troops they didn't you know? they didn't so anyway what's next next for us we are going to go back to actually the the Eastern Theater and we are going to be going back to Second Manassas, and we're going to be going talking Bronner's Farm. We'll be adding iron to our diet, then, Mary. We definitely we'll be talking will about be. the uh, about Battle of Bronner's Farm. You know what yep. that means? Iron Brigade. So yep. that'll be a great time talking about that again. Battle Second Manassas site's a great place to go. We'll have a lot of fun talking about that. So we have our roundtable tomorrow. By the time this drops, it'll yep. already be in the book. So, so hopefully, it was a good yep. one. And we'll have our live again on Saturday, and we'll prepare for Bronner's Farm. 
next Tuesday. Yeah. So good discussion. Not a lot of people talk about Richmond, Kentucky. No, um, they don't. Most people don't realize even was a battle in Richmond, Kentucky, unfortunately, because it's one of those obscure ones. But I think that's your point, like you said earlier, that all battles matter. And this is one that did have strategic and, and psychological importance, specifically at the time for the Confederacy and the Union. So it was definitely worth a good discussion. I think people need to study these battles because, as we say, they all lead to bigger and better things. And understanding this one is a great way to understand the future action that took place in that part of the country yeah. in, this, in this war. I think we will be discussing more in the area of Kentucky in the Kentucky campaign because it doesn't just stop with Richmond. You have other stuff going on, like you know, October eighth, you had the Battle of Perryville, which is a uh, it's a federal victory, and then it does not turn out well for the Confederates. It does not turn out how Braxton Bragg wanted it to, which was taking back Kentucky and and all of that. And he basically ends up back where he started nope that's where it was they'll go back to the beginning again with that so anyway so i guess we could sign up for this one so yep. a good episode for you so always good to um always good to talk about some different people guys like Marlon manson and thomas churchill yep. and guys like that a lot of these guys who don't get the publicity they probably deserve to get so off we go to bronner's farm we're heading back to manassas virginia next week where it's going to be hot miserable as we talk about about bronner's Sounds farm like your so off we go. right now <laughs> It's going to be hot and miserable and last for the rest of your life. Anyway, so anyway, Mary, it was a good talk. As I say yep. many, many times, the pleasure, of course, was, as you know, was all yours. Oh, I know. And we will look forward to talking to um talking to you soon. So, Mary, off we go. Looking forward to the next one. And episode 53 is in the books. And we head back east to Second Manassas to yep. talk about Bronner's. And I am looking forward to talking about that because it is one of my favorite yep. um, parts of that battle. Same so, here. off we go. So, thank you to all our listeners for supporting us for these now 53 episodes. We really appreciate it hope you are enjoying this journey with us we've been at this now for over a year so thank you darren for sticking by me for over a year of doing this with me with my usual tuesday moods and stuff Just touch and although go. although darren in the heat is a little bit like mary on tuesday oh my goodness gracious but oh well it is what it is so off we go so i'm gonna go find some air conditioning mary have a great night everyone have a great time uh, we have a great weekend as you listen to this and we look forward to talking to you on the other side Okay, see you guys later. Peace out.